So how do you get out of this spiral of self-defeating criticism and shame? Well, today I have an expert in this. She is someone who has, out of her personal experience, realized that she cannot live in the shadow of all these expectations and what it means to have a perfect household. She's a therapist and an author. Her book is called How to Keep House While Drowning. She has a TikTok, uh, a TikTok video sequence, which is daily. It's called Domestic Blisters. And she talks about how when she had her second child, she was so overwhelmed with all those duties that for seven months she was unable to fold the laundry, completely paralyzed. And from that state of, of self-attacking herself and her shame and feeling bad, she created a system based on a new philosophy, a revolutionary approach on how to take care of your home without the feeling that you're always having to run or be behind. Welcome to Get Real with me, Dr. Friedman. If you want to live with greater purpose, authenticity, and empowerment, this is your time to upgrade your belief systems, unlock your true potential, and discover the endless possibilities of you becoming the creator of your life. Casey, it's so nice to have you on Get Real, because that's a real thing that you have been dealing with when it came to writing a book about your own pain and finding a solution for many that you know have been in the same situation and the same pain. Tell us a little bit about that, how you started feeling, I cannot live in the shame anymore. So, you know, it's interesting, and I mentioned in the book, Growing up as a girl that had undiagnosed ADHD, I, one of the things that happens and, and it happens to a lot of kids that, you know, if there's not a, so if they don't have a diagnosis on them, and often, even if they do have that diagnosis, really any way that you don't fit into the box of how our sort of education system wants you to behave automatically any of those behaviors, it seems like they get labeled first and foremost as a character issue. So you don't do your homework. Well, you must be irresponsible. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you interrupt in class and you raise your hand and you talk over people. Well, you must be self-absorbed. You must be attention seeking. You know, you can't, um, you don't study for your tests. Well, it must be laziness. It's like, that's where a lot of, unfortunately, even teachers and parents, that's the first place we go, particularly the older the kid gets, right? You have a high school kid, that's like right where we go. And so we end up sort of saddled with these character defects and, and these moral implications about who we are as a person. And as we go through life, anytime we get into a challenging spot, it's like we've already had those neural pathways set that if I'm struggling with X, it's this, I'm lazy, I'm irresponsible, I'm too much. I'm, And so, I, I mean, I did a lot of work to sort of unpack sort of issues of worthiness. I went to drug rehab when I was 16 and for a long, long time. And that's a whole other story in and of itself. But one thing they actually did do well was sort of have us have these experiences of vulnerability and community and people going, Hey, I'm just like you. And so I got out of rehab. I went to a lot of therapy. I even did at the time I was a, a, a part of a church that had a lot of sort of, um, they had actually had a recovery ministry where that people were talking honestly and being vulnerable. So it was interesting to me how I had done all of this work around, okay, I am a worthy person. You know, I am okay. Who I am is fine. My personality is fine, but it was a hard fought and hard won prize. And I had always been messy. I had always been a little scatterbrained. Um, I'd always had trouble creating my own structure and, but my house for the most part functioned until 2020. And this is when I had my second baby, we had moved to a different city, and we had moved into a house that was 
it's not a huge house, but it's bigger than the houses and apartments we'd been living in. And that was the first time that it was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, whatever coping skills I have, I've, I've officially can't, they're not working anymore. Right. And so I had had some little tips and tricks that I'd come up with myself through the years, you know, like my five things tidying method to sort of keep myself from being overwhelmed. Um, but it wasn't until I really got on TikTok and started making content that I started seeing that old messaging of, oh, you must be lazy. The first video I ever posted, somebody commented lazy on it. And feeling that old feeling of like, oh, maybe this is a mistake. Is this what I'm, is this what I'm going to get if I really be my authentic self here? And luckily, although that does happen, what I found was far more people that actually related to the struggles that I was talking about. And I didn't intend to kind of um, get into the niche of talking about, you know, care tasks and mental health, but I just sort of fell into it and, and I love it so much. And I, I didn't realize, I think how many people really related to that idea of, cause we're not talking about it. Nobody's talking about you know, and even when you go to therapy, you know, my therapist will say, well, how's it going? And I, I just never thought to lead with, I think I, maybe I'm a piece of shit because I can't seem to unload the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's interesting that you said ADHD because on some level, is that really only the way for us to accept that we are not lazy or not like we are supposed to be if we are putting that on us or can we just be different and okay with that without a diagnosis that's such a great question i remember early on even before i had a diagnosis when somebody was asking me well maybe i have adhd or maybe i have this or you know or someone was saying i'm afraid i'm afraid to go get an assessment because what if they come back and say i don't meet the criteria and i remember saying at that time two things one is you can honor a neurodivergency without a diagnosis, even if you never meet criteria for any of the, like the idea that we even know what all the different neurotypes are, what all the different sort of ways people's brains, what we don't know that there's could be a, you know, there could be an X neurotype out there that we haven't talked about or, or discovered yet. And it, it reminds me of that. And it reminds me of someone that asked me recently, I wish I wish I had a diagnosis, but I'm afraid the reason is I'm just lazy and really getting to talk to that person and say, you know, those aren't the only two options, right? The, the, it's not like, okay, I'm struggling with care tasks. I'm struggling with sort of basic living. The only two ex explanations for that in her mind was I have a diagnosis and that would mean I'm okay or I'm lazy. Right. And so that's there. There's all of this area in between of you're just a human being and human beings struggle with different things. Human beings have different barriers and privileges and you might struggle with it in this season and not in the next, or you may struggle with it forever. But the truth is, is that when I say that care tasks are morally neutral, we don't mean they're morally neutral only for people that have a diagnosis. We mean they're morally neutral for everyone. And some people may never have an explanation for quote unquote, why it's hard for them to shower. And that's really important because I think it's important that we are not just replacing, oh yeah, now I have an explanation why I cannot do it because there is something wrong with me. So that can also be a slippery slope of just seeing yourself as different, handicapped, whatever. But what I'm wondering and playing a little devil's advocate, in your mind, does laziness even exist? Is there really a lazy person? So. I've never met one. And I listen, I worked in addiction for most of my career. And particularly, I worked a lot with the demographic that we would refer to as failure to launch. So the young adults who are between 18 and 25, who are using substances, and they, they won't really get a job, and they can't seem to be have any kind of maturity in their relationships. And a lot of these young men and women and individuals, their parents would often talk about, they're so lazy, they're so irresponsible, there's so this, that, and the other. But when I got to know these clients and really sit down and talk to them about what they were experiencing as the barriers, I never, never, ever at the end of that exploration, did we ever discover that the problem was just that they were lazy. 
there was always some sort of real barrier there. Well, because lazy is really just the description of a symptom and it's not really what it is at the core, right? I mean, it's the label that our parents or teachers or whoever puts on us because we are not acting according to expectation. But yeah, if you keep that as, okay, you're not doing what you're supposed to do equals lazy, maybe that would be accurate. But if you're saying, well, why are you not doing what you're supposed to do? What's underneath that? then you never find lazy. I totally agree with that. But it's such a big programming in our society that we always have to be productive, always have to do something, always have to keep everything tidy in order. Otherwise, we are lazy. And do you feel like more and more people struggle with that old programming that they are there's just a feeling of the world is so overwhelming and it is so I cannot keep up? Because our parents seem to have not had the same resistance to it, or maybe they didn't show it as much, or maybe they had the five o'clock whiskey and it wasn't as hard. I don't know what they were doing, but there's certainly something that I feel has changed in our society. Well, I think that there's sort of two sides of the same coin here. On one side are the people who are under-functioning and they are struggling with a lack of motivation or a lack of task initiation or right something that is sort of becoming a barrier they want to increase that functioning the same coin on the other side are people that are functioning or maybe even over functioning they are not necessarily struggling with motivation or task initiation they're actually struggling with stopping they're struggling with perfectionism. They're not able to stop and rest. They have anxiety. They have, you know, things need to look a certain way. And I think that unfortunately in our society, we tend to actually reward the people on the side of the coin that outputs productivity and, and, and aesthetically perfect things. And we go, wow, how do you do it all? And we assume that that, that product, what they're producing means they must have a healthy, good internal condition and then we look at people who aren't producing the way we think they should and go oh that must be a character defect so these these are morally good people and morally bad people but the truth is i mean i think that anxiety disorders are massively underdiagnosed in women who are mothers and partners because we reward a mother that has a perfect home even if she has, she can only maintain that kind of quote unquote order through massive unchecked anxiety or obsession or perfectionism. And so I think it's, I think it's the picture I think is bigger than just trying to figure out if laziness doesn't exist and sort of looking at those two things as the same coin. And that's why I, I tell people, you know, I, I don't care if your home is messy. I don't care if it's immaculate. This is not it's, it's way more complex than just going, actually, messy is better. And people who clean don't spend time with their kids. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I don't care if your house is messy. I don't care if it's immaculate. I don't care about that at all. I care if you're in pain. And I know that people can be under-functioning in their life and be in massive amounts of pain. And I know that people can be functioning or over-functioning in their life and be in a lot of pain. And I know that sometimes... You might look at the way someone's living and go, gosh, they must be, that's so awful. And they're actually fine, right? They're sitting in their artist studio in their messy house and never being on time to appointments, but actually they're, they're great. They're happy. They're centered. They're stable. Um, and the same thing. I mean, I, I do know people that keep almost museum-like homes and they don't do that out of anxiety. They do that out of, uh, this is a hobby that I really like to do and I'm really at peace. And so I think that looking at those things as, you know, it matters about the distress of the person. Yeah. Well, your book is probably more for the people that are under-functioning and have a hard time to initiate, always feeling behind procrastinators. Now, in your book, you have a very gentle approach, which I love, and it's based on self-compassion. And and I think that shows in your philosophy about the house is not what you're working for, which I think changed everything for you, right? When you realize yes. that's not how I want to live anymore. Yes. What I found was that when we look at forming a foundation of moral neutrality 
and self-compassion, when something came out of the moral obligation bucket for me into the totally, this is just functional, all of a sudden it gave me permission to think outside the box and think creatively. And like one example I give is, is like my, um, my closet. You know, when I was struggling to get clothes uh, folded and put away, and there's four people in our family, right? And so my husband and I had a closet, my baby had a closet, my toddler had a closet. And when I wasn't able to do that, what would happen was I could get it washed and dried and then it would sit on a giant pile in the laundry room floor. And every time you walk by, you're like, oh gosh, there's the pile, right? And, and I knew that I was having trouble getting it done for various reasons, right? Newborn, all this kind of stuff. But it wasn't until I really started leaning into the idea that like my pile of clean laundry on the floor is morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine that we're living out of a, a pile of laundry. Once I did that, I sort of allowed myself to have permission to think about maybe the only reason that it's sitting there is because I think the only thing I'm allowed to do with it is fold it and put it in three different closets. What if I was allowed to do anything I wanted with it? What if I was allowed to increase the functioning of the pile without worrying about whether I'm doing it quote unquote correctly? And, and that's when I started going, well, you know, the pile is fine. It's fine. But it is a little, it is a little annoying to have to comb through it every day. And so what would it be like if I were to put my laundry away without folding it? What if I... And, and also, why am I going to three different closets to dress three different people that I myself am dressing? We should really be doing this in one location. And that's when I started a family closet and I took everything out of the closet and I put in these shelving units with bins. And I said, I can sit on my butt right here and I can literally throw these things into various bins. And yeah, they're still not folded, but now it's more functional. And so realizing that we can make these small functional upgrades in our home once we give ourselves permission to think outside of the box, because the only person that the laundry system needs to serve is me. Now, how do you give yourself permission? Because a lot of people would say, well, you know, nice for you to say morally neutral. I hear my mom in the background. I see my grandma looking at me with a frown. I mean, how do you get yourself to make that decision to be the authority of your life? Hmm. I think it's really going to be a unique path for each person. For some people, they hear this message and it just sort of clicks for them. And all of a sudden, the majority they find that the majority of the distress in their life was just related to the things they were telling themselves about their home. And then you find someone who goes, okay, this really makes sense to me in my head, but how do I get it down to my heart? How do I get to the point where I'm not feeling shame every time I pass by the dishes in the, you know, and I talk a lot about the idea that neurons that fire together, wire together. And that if you've spent a lifetime either telling yourself or being told by someone else that, you know, dishes in the sink means that you're not good enough or you're not pulling your weight or you're not a good parent, spouse, partner, you've got a pretty ingrained pathway for that message. And it's going to take some time to get some new neural pathways in there so that that's not what you feel just as soon as you do it. And so I think that there's sort of several, depending on what somebody is, where they're coming from, is having some just like conscious stopping and going, huh, I'm, I'm telling myself that I am not doing a good job as a parent right now because these dishes are in the sink. I think that there's something to be said for I've had followers that say I, I write down some of these quote unquote truths or affirmations and I I put it on the on the counter right above where my dishes are so I can remember this. Um, and I think the other part of it is really embracing small changes and and going for momentum other than perfection. And so maybe there's something there about the dishes that is deeply ingrained. And so sometimes when someone's saying, I'm having a trouble getting motivated to really do anything for future me. And we talk about reconceptualizing, okay, I need to do the dishes because if I don't, I'm going to feel shame because if I don't, then I won't be good enough. And thinking instead about, wouldn't it be such a kindness to future me 
if she could come down the stairs tomorrow and the sink was clear and she could get, you know, the cups that her kids need immediately. And sometimes that shift, just that conscious, I'm going to do something kind for myself really does a lot for creating some of those new pathways about why we're, we're doing things. And then sometimes for people, I say, let's not start with the dishes at all. What is a small thing in the morning that you could do for yourself in the evening. And the example that I give for myself is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it's chilly in my house. And then the walk from my bedroom to my bathroom, my feet are freezing. And so I started thinking, okay, well, if I were to put my slippers, cause I've got a pair of slippers, but who knows where they end up in the house every day, right? If that at night I were to take my slippers and put them by my bedside every night, that would be a real kindness to morning me. And, and it might be for someone that that's a better place to start than trying to figure out how to redo your whole laundry system, because there's no messaging connecting to your slippers, right? There's no baggage, emotional baggage about your slippers, but just getting in the habit of when you wake up in the morning and you see those slippers and you have that reward moment of how nice is that? This is actually really lovely. And we're kind of creating, bringing closer that sort of delayed gratification cycle, right? Of like, wow, I, that felt really good. And so it's easier than that, that next night to motivate yourself to go get those, to initiate the task of going to get them because this morning that really did feel good. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes picking these almost lower stakes um, items that don't have that same emotional context to just get in the momentum of being kind to tomorrow you And then that momentum is easier to spill over into, well, what if I just put three of those dishes into the dishwasher tonight before I go get my slippers? Well, I think the key is also this kindness to yourself, because when we are in this messy and shame spiral that ultimately is ganging up on ourselves, all we want is just to keep up or somehow be on the same level and always falling behind. So there is just the self-critical idea that doesn't really create a lot of momentum. But if you are saying like, well, I'm doing this not because my grandma is looking at my house, but because I'm going to be kind to myself, this feels good to me. All of a sudden, I think it's a different kind of motivation, which is not about measuring up to someone's expectation, but it's about you feeling good and making yourself feel good, which I think our mind in general, doesn't oppose. In general, it doesn't want to, you know, fail or mess up, but it likes to feel good. So this is something. So I love this idea of the future self. I have a a little cheerleader inside of me that always cheers me on when I do the smallest task. I mean, if it's like, you know, just putting something away or I see something and I pick it up, it's like, yeah, good job. This looks good. Do you feel it's important that we have also a different self-talk and, and really look at, you know, just how we can make ourselves feel good through this inner commentary that's more positive than just nagging? I think that that is one of the biggest keys is changing the way that I talk to myself about care tasks, um, both when I'm on top, quote unquote, on top of them and when I'm not, you know, because paying attention to, you know, when my home is clean, what am I telling myself? Am I saying, okay, I finally got it. I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Because if I allow even that to be morally neutral and instead go, this feels good because I like to know where my things are. This feels good because, you know, I like to be able to sit on the couch without crumbs there. Right. But I think that turning that self-talk around and just being coming aware of when we are using that shame talk because shame is ultimately very paralyzing. And I also think when we hear that shame talk, really asking ourselves where those messages came from, because a lot of times it's not even our voice, right? right? It's right. our mother's voice, or it's that second grade teacher that told us we were lazy's voice, or it was that sort of abusive spouse's voice that we had. Um, and so I think that that's really more than half the battle because there are people who their barriers are more than just their self-talk. And they may not ever be able to make more than small degrees of functional changes. They might have um, a disability that like prevents them from the mobility that it would take to keep a a clean house. They might have um, a neurodivergency or they might have 
an economic barrier that prevents them from accessing the help or the medication that would actually get them to a functional place. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that, that there are people whose barriers are real and may not change even after reading this book or, or implementing some of these things, which is why if we can just change the way that we talk to ourselves, I think that A, it will allow us to, to be more functional. It will change the way that we feel motivated and things like that. But also, even if how messy we are doesn't change, changing our self-talk will absolutely change the level of suffering and distress that we have in our life. Because it's leading to acceptance eventually. But even now you're framing things like you in your book write about uh, you know, the dishes, you know, rather than saying, oh, I'm such a mess, you know, I cooked three nights in a row. And I mean, you certainly have a way also of seeing things not through the lens of there's good or bad, right or wrong, but just something that actually ultimately sees it in a different way. And, and have you found that helpful just to not get stuck in acceptable, not acceptable, but just give it a different meaning? Yeah, a lot of that has to do with when I decided to change my vocabulary around care tasks. So I kind of coined this term care tasks early on because housework and chores was just too laden with all of those messaging and it was too external, right? Housework has an external measurement of standard and things like that. Whereas a care task really brought it home for me that the only reason I'm doing this task is I'm is because I'm a person that deserves to function. The only reason to shower is that I'm a person that deserves to be clean. The only reason to do the dishes is because I'm a person that deserves to have a clean dish to eat off of. I deserve to go to my sink and not feel overwhelmed. These are things that I deserve as a person and I deserve them not because of anything except that I'm a human being. And so changing some of my language around that and like instead of saying I need to clean my kitchen because that was this ambiguous task and it either made me not want to do it at all or feel like I had to do it for six hours. When I started saying I need to reset my kitchen, that was key because I can reset a kitchen in 25 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. There's only five things that I need to reset a kitchen. When I would look down at my kids and instead of going, this playroom is a mess, we need to clean this playroom. When I would look down and go, hey kiddos, like this playroom has reached the end of its functional cycle. It's no longer working for us. We can't find our toys. There's not enough room to spread our toys out. And that's what lets us know that it's time to reset this space. And so when I changed my language around these things, it really helped me remove that shame and, and moral value to it. And to see it more as, you know, I'm just making my home serve me. Now, your, your resetting process also included the five things tidying method, which I think is really very valuable for people to hear about. So what is that and how can they implement it? So I started, I guess, maybe in my 20s when I had my own place and had to clean. And I, I've never been someone who can clean as you go, as people often advise. Um, I would prefer to not think about it at all and then like kind of roll up my sleeves and think about nothing but the cleaning. But in order so, to sort of get over the overwhelm of how much stuff there was, I began to tell myself, okay, there's only five things in this room. There's trash, dishes, laundry, things that have a place that are not in their place and things that don't have a place. And I would start with trash and I would, I would, I wouldn't even like, this was key to me. I didn't pick up trash and take it to the, to the trash can. I would literally carry a trash bag around and, and put the trash in it. And the trash bag gave me this visual reminder of like, what am I doing? Oh yeah, trash. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't have to move around too much. And, and so I would do that. And then I would get all the trash up and I would put the trash bag down and then I would immediately move to laundry and I'd carry that laundry basket around and I put all the laundry and the shoes in it and I put that down. And what I, what I realized was that the more that I can automate any of my cleaning and care tasks, the better my brain does with that when it has a very clear path, a very clear. So, you know, instead of talking about routines, I actually refer to them as rituals because they're very ritualized. And there's just something that feels like getting into a hot tub for my brain about engaging in a ritual. 
Um, my brain doesn't have to deal with the decision paralysis. It doesn't have to deal with the overwhelm. It has a very clear path of where to go. And it sort of works with my brain instead of against it. And it allows me to sort of hyper-focus on one thing at a time and ignore everything. So whether that's my five things tidying method or my closing duties, I really work to have a specific list and order. And then also making sure that within that, there's room for what kind of day am I having? Am I having a day where I want to do all five things? And at the end of that, with my pile of things that don't have a place, am I going to sit down and find permanent homes? Or am I just having a day where I'm going to, I'm going to pick up the trash and then put the dishes in the sink and then be done? Because that will still bring a, a vast improvement to my functioning in my space. And while I'm doing those things, I really kind of rediscovered the power of play as an adult of, okay, while I'm doing this, what sort of funny games can I play in my head as I'm doing this? Could I pretend that I am a world-renowned cleaning expert and I'm on live TV and everyone's watching me? Can I pretend that I'm on SEAL Team 6 and, and I, you know, I have to get these things picked up in the next five minutes or the world will implode? I mean, just silly things that, you know, we almost think we're not allowed to do anymore because we're adults, but my brain needs that kind of play and stimulation and routine to find that activity. Not that it's like my favorite activity to do, but I had to make a way to find it tolerable for my brain and feel a little bit rewarding. I love that. And I could definitely remember well how I used this, you know, a long time ago. So I'm going to pick that up again to just have these little ideas. And, but you know, you also have something that I really loved about your way of going about your day. You know, you, you wrote uh, about ADHD that we cannot really white knuckle ourselves into routines. We have to find a rhythm and, and you just accept that you have a meandering rhythm that you go here and there and you pick something up and then you move to the next thing. And so you're like a little, river going through different uh, stages and you accept that and i think that is also something that we have to really maybe look for what is the rhythm the dance as we go through the day that feels the best to us because mm -hmm. this whole marching order and having to do one thing and then complete i mean i my wife and i have been cleaning our closet it was we have to laugh so hard because we were cleaning it out but five minutes later, I was in the garden picking something up there, some, you know, like, I don't know, <laughs> she was by the car. Yep. I mean, it was the same thing. We were just completely moving around in that dance. And, and at the end, it was so much more enjoyable to not force yourself to do something that feels as if, you know, now you're failing because you haven't finished it. So how, how would you say people find their rhythm? Well, I love the idea of, it was actually a friend of mine who's a psychologist, um, Dr. Leslie Cook, who encouraged me to look at rhythm instead of routine, right? Because rhythms can be very predictable, you know, never miss a beat, right? But rhythms can also be like jazz, where it does kind of do this meandering, you know, and I can jump on and jump off. And I never have this, well, what if I fall off the horse? What if I don't do it for two days? Because to me, that's totally acceptable within my rhythm. Um, and so one of the things that I do is like, whenever I do come up with, okay, one of my sort of early ideas was to have a major care task each day, just one, right? So like, I'm going to do laundry on Mondays. And for a lot of reasons that really helped me. And then on Tuesdays, I will, um, you know, clean, I had bathrooms on Tuesdays, but what was key for me was that Having bathrooms on Tuesdays did not mean clean all of the bathroom. It just meant clean something in the bathroom. So some days I could honor having this big energy and, and focus and go in there and clean a whole bathroom. And some days I'd go in there and I'd pick a piece of toilet paper and I'd wipe the counter down and I'd go, I'm done. Right. Because it's okay. I, I can move within this rhythm and honor big energy days and low energy days and busy days and unfocused days and days when I'm stressed and still feel like I'm participating in this rhythm. And then the other thing was giving myself really permission whenever we do utilize lists and schedules 
really keeping reminders for myself that, you know, this schedule exists to serve me. I don't exist to serve this list or this schedule. What this list is doing for me is taking out the decision fatigue and giving me sort of a place to start and focus. It's not here telling me what to do. And sort of looking at sort of changing the way that I looked at any kind of use of lists and schedules. And then if I skipped a day, that was totally morally neutral. And, and then what I found was I ended up, I had it like dusting on one of my days, like on Wednesday, and I never did it. Never. And so finally about four weeks went by, five weeks went by, six weeks went by. And I thought, gosh, I never, ever do this. And I thought, I really would like to be able to say that I'm completing my whole list. So what could I do here? And instead of trying to figure out how to make myself dust, I just said, I'm just going to take dusting off the list. (laughs) And I did. And I put, I just, I literally, it was like this, okay, I'm not doing it. And I'm not, I have other things in my life that are, are, very important that I have to figure out how to make happen, right? Like you can't say it's hard for me to feed my kids breakfast. So I'll just stop doing it. Like there are some things we have to figure out how to get dusting done is not one of them. Let's just let that go. Let's put something we actually feel a little bit motivated to accomplish in. So I stuck a different task on Tuesdays and I rolled with that for a few weeks and go, okay, yeah, I kind of find myself doing that task more. And the reality was if you take dusting off the list, it won't get done but it wasn't getting done when it was on the list anyways. So like the only thing happening here is that I'm actually getting more done because I put something on the list I feel a little bit motivated to do. And so I think that changing the way that I looked at lists and schedules as tools to serve me and thinking of the whole thing as this sort of jazz rhythm that it's okay to skip beats. It's okay for beats to speed up and I feel quote unquote on top of things for a few days. And then maybe I go three days and I do nothing because I always have these tools to sort of help me when I am ready to go, you know what, I do wanna do something. I have these tools to help me figure out where to focus, where to start. Um, And so I think that that's been really key for me. And it really is, like you said, giving yourself also this executive power to say what is important to me. And mm-hmm. that thing is not important to you. And so you just say, why should I even put it on? And that's, I guess, very personal. Everyone has to decide. What do I want to live with? What do I choose to live with? And what can I live with? And then I'm just going to operate in that little circle there and see where I'm at. And and checking in with your personal energy level or where you are at at the day. I think that so many of us don't do that. We're just like assuming we're little machines that are always functioning at the same level, German cars that are just always running, but it's not true. We have really different ways of operating every day. And sometimes we are the slave of our list and you are actually making the list just simply a little tool a little aid but it's not running your life and i think that's very very empowering but a lot of people sit there now and say well i guess she figured it out but i'm a procrastinator i don't even know how to get myself from this place where i'm listening to the 10th podcast and not getting out of my couch to making the first step What is it what you find is really helping just to get one step forward, one movement? So the first step that I took, which I often recommend is the first step simply because it worked for me. And so, you know, I I think that for some people that sort of first step of like, okay, just pick something like the slippers. But the first thing that I did was, you know, I, I had a baby and a toddler and they were both on bottles. And one of the more frustrating things in my life was waking up in the morning because by the time it was time for them to go to bed at seven, I was like collapsing on the couch and couldn't do another thing. So I was not going to spend any more time cleaning. But in the morning, I would wake up as they woke me up and, you know, they would be hungry and they'd be crying and I would have to go find the bottles wherever in the house I left them and then hand wash them with really hot water. So I knew that they were clean. And, and, and then I'm getting overstimulated because of the crying and I'm going really fast. And so I finally said, okay, what if, what if every night after they go to bed, I know I don't have a lot of energy to do big, huge sweeping things, but what if I just made it a point to find those bottles, put those bottles in the dishwasher 
And I did that. I started doing that every night. And what was key for that was that some nights I had the energy to unload the dishwasher first. Some nights I didn't. So the nights that I didn't, I just opened my clean dishwasher and shoved the dirty bottles into the clean dishwasher and ran it again. <laughs> and it was like, wait, I have permission. I can do this. This is, this isn't against the rules. It was like, nope, no. I mean, no dishwasher police showed up at my house the next day. So apparently it's okay. And, and so that's all I did for weeks. And as I, instead of pressuring myself to add on to that or do more, I allowed myself to just soak in and enjoy how much easier my mornings were mm -hmm. when I could come downstairs and immediately get those bottles. And I think we often feel as though, you know, building habits like that is supposed to be this really quick stair step. Like, okay, I did that for a week, add something. I did that for a week, add something. And I'm going, man, maybe you just spend six months putting those bottles in at night before you feel like I'm, what if I also made some coffee? So it was ready to go in the morning. And really starting with the things that seem functional to you. Don't start with whatever your mother-in-law would tell you you should tackle first. Start with those small things like that. And don't be afraid to break the rules to get them done. And what ended up happening with those over two years is that I started referring to them as my closing duties. It's another like terminology change. I used to be a server and, you know, you wait your tables. And when you're done waiting your tables, you have to go do your side duties or your closing duties. And part of doing that is setting up the openers of the restaurant for success. So they come in and the silverware is rolled and the lemons are cut. And so thinking about that as a kindness to the opener, which was me, and also thinking of, you know, if I do unload and load, uh, unload and reload my dishwasher, and then I started going, and, you know, I really need a little bit of space to prepare food in the morning, but I have a big kitchen island and going, well, I don't need the whole kitchen island for that. So what if one thing on my list is just clear off a quarter of the kitchen island, even if you just push everything to the side and wipe it down with a baby wipe real quick. And I ended up having my closing duties list. And it's still like a jazz rhythm, like things will fall off the list, I'll put a new thing on the list, you know, it kind of moves with me and some things stay the same. And so every night at seven o'clock, I would do my little closing duty list, it would take me 25 minutes to put my kitchen into functional order. And then I would clock out. I'd say I'm done. I'm not mm -hmm. doing anymore. This is now mm -hmm. my time to enjoy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I get to take care of right now me and tomorrow me at the same time. And then the key to closing duties for me was that I created what I called survival day closing duties. So on a normal night or like a night where I feel up to it, I unload and reload my dishwasher. I wipe down half of the counter. Um, I put away any food that's been left out. I sweep my floor and I take uh, medication, right? And so, and, and then maybe take the trash out. Like those were, that was on my list for a long time. And then I had this smaller list called survival day. And this was any day where I got to the end of the day and thought this feels too much. And on my survival day duty, duties was take your medication and shove those milk. I mean, now they're older, so they drink like sippy cups, but it's like, and shove the sippy cups into the dishwasher and run it again. <laughs> and so there's always an option for me. And that takes less than three minutes. Like there's almost never a night where I haven't done that. Um, and so giving myself the permission to either do the full list or the survival list was, is like key for me. And so I always, I always suggest that closing duties for people are a great place to start. And then some people, you know, maybe you prefer to do opening duties or, you mm -hmm. know, so the time mm -hmm. of day doesn't matter, but I always say, start with one thing try to do or schedule that one thing for a time where you're already on your feet. So for me, right, we had put kids to bed and I'm coming down the stairs, I'm already standing. I couldn't do a thing where I sit down on my couch for an hour and then get up again. Um, and I try not to schedule them for last thing at night because I know I'm gonna be too tired. So just thinking about how you work, right? Maybe for somebody it's when you come home from working, you come in and you intentionally don't take off your shoes yet, right? And you do your two things or your three things and then take off your shoes and have the rest of your afternoon. But that's where I like to suggest that people start looking at and to start very, very small. 
And it really sounds like also do the things that make you feel good. I mean, even if it's your future self and you yeah. don't get instant gratification, but there is something about this feel good moment, just doing it for you. That really, I think when we think about how it's going to feel, gets us more motivated when we feel like, wow, I love it having this cleaned in the morning or I love having these, like you said, the slippers on and uh, now, one thing I'm, I'm wondering is because you mentioned also that you're not alone, you're ha having a husband, but you know, you, you had this uh, example of a coal miner who pretty much works all day long and comes home and feels like I'm spent, I'm done, I can't do anything. And then the person that stays at home, takes care of the kids, basically has 24 seven all week long, the chores and never has a time off because the mine is always open. So. How have you been managing this with your husband? Well, I, first of all, I'm blessed to have a husband that is just the most like incredible understanding person and we're similar and that neither one of us are really neat freaks. And so I know that it's very difficult to be in a partnership with someone that has super high standards, but you know, early on when my husband, my husband and I never intended to have super traditional gender roles from any type of value. It was just that he ended up being a lawyer and working for a law firm that was really demanding. And I wanted to be a stay at home mom and I had, we had two kids. And so that's just kind of what happened. But one of the things that I've always really admired about my husband is that he has always said like, well, if you're the one doing it, you're the one setting the standards. Like you do it your way, you do it the way that makes sense. Um, and he said to me one time, when I come home and I walk in and the house is super, super messy, it's just it looks like, you know, a bomb went off. The first thing I think to myself is you must have had either a very, very good day or a very, very hard day. Wow. And man, are you I listening? <laughs> That's really yeah. good. <laughs> And thank God, because it really is hard to explain to someone who doesn't understand how incredibly taxing and exhausting and busy and constant it is to take care of little kids during the day. And you might come home and it looks like they've done nothing, but it's actually that I've done so many things. I didn't have time or energy to get to these other things, right? right? Particularly if you're trying to be a halfway decent parent and stay emotionally regulated and not scream at people. And you know what I mean? If you're trying to, to do that and he's just always had that. And, you know, he'll say, yeah, I guess if you, if there was like a magical fairy, if you asked me if I like things clean or messy, I guess I prefer it clean, but like not more than I prefer you being happy. Um, well, and so, that's love. Yeah. And I think, What's hard is that a lot of times there's a lot of internalized sort of patriarchy to unpack there. I had somebody comment recently on a YouTube video where I was talking about division of labor and he said, um, you know, well, I'm the provider for my family. I provide for my five kids and for my wife. And I feel like, you know, when do I get to be appreciated? And, you know, I work, uh, I work up to 80 hours a week and I try to help out when I'm home, but the reality is that, and so he's kind of talking and talking. And I mean, he might be a really great guy, but what I had to point out to him was, let's start with some like basic things that you're assuming. Number one, when you say that you provide for your wife, what that tells me, like you're already looping her in with the kids as like the people you provide for. What that tells me is that you believe providing is ultimately about money. Because who's doing the laundry? Who's making the meals? Who's doing the dishes? Who's cleaning the house? Who's organizing play dates? Who's making sure your kids have the right clothes? Who's putting band-aids on them? Who's making sure that you have toilet paper? Who is, you know, taking a parenting class and learning about parenting? Who it like those things are also providing. Your wife is providing for your children and she is providing for you. Unpaid unpaid. And so this idea that paid providing is somehow more valuable than unpaid providing. And I had to point that out. Both of you provide for each other, but both of you are providing for your family and your children. And so we have to get out of this idea that 
there's only one, there's a higher value to your time because it's being paid. So I think that that's huge. And I think a lot of men, even really good men have to unpack that for themselves because that's what they've been told. And then the other thing I had to bring to him was, you know, you say, well, I work 80 hours a week. Okay, buddy. Well, every hour that you don't have off is also an hour that she does not have off. If you're away 80 hours a week, that means she is the single parent doing everything in that house at least 80 hours a week. So when you come home from your 80 hours, you guys have to decide what is this partnership going to look like? Is it going to be me working hard 80 hours a week while you work hard 80 hours a week and then I get to come home and rest while you just continue to work? because these other care tasks still need to be done, right? Parenting is not a nine to five job. Like I get that you work a lot, but he didn't seem to recognize that for every hour he was working, his spouse was at home working alone, carrying that whole load alone. And that's not, it's, that's not wrong, but there has to be a level of appreciating each other's time and energy and recognizing that talking about who is working harder, quote unquote, is just never a discussion that is ever going to be fruitful. It's not a competition for sure. It's not a competition. The truth is, is that everyone deserves to rest. But that's the key. So what do you do when two parents are completely exhausted for different reasons, both sit on the couch, and then you have to still divide somehow and conquer the rest of the family. So you found a solution for this, I think. You, you are doing this pretty well with your husband. Yeah, so it's interesting because recently, you know, I started working again. I started working full-time on my platform and our kids are getting older. And so my husband and I sat down and we're like, okay, so we probably need to look at how we're doing our family labor. And we ended up using um, Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play, Mm -hmm. which was super helpful. It really concentrates on sort of heteronormative couples and sort of the, the dynamics that tend to work out in male female relationships. And she basically says, you know, we're going to take this, this, all of this list. So she makes this huge list of all this family labor and she actually sells a card deck. Oh, I have it right here. This card deck of all these uh -huh. cards. And I love the way that she sets up her system because the first thing she has, first of all, the cards include both physical labor and mental labor because running a home and a family is more than just who's doing the dishes, who's mopping the floor, but who's thinking about the Easter bunny? Who's thinking about the tooth fairy? Who's thinking about charity and values? And what are we gonna do with our children this week for that? Who is thinking about the children's friendships? and monitoring those, right? Like there's all of this mental labor that I think for someone who socialized as a man, they perhaps don't see that until it's written down on that card. But I love the first thing she has you do. The first thing she has you do as a family is call the deck. She said, go through and take any card out that you don't give a shit about. Mm. Because the truth is, there is only so much time and energy in the day and everyone has different barriers and everyone has different jobs and everyone has different families. And there's no rule saying you have to do Christmas cards. And so she talks about the first thing you got to do is call the deck, take some things out of here that you guys don't value start. And it's, so I love it because it's very parallel to what I talk about, which is start with what is functional for you. Start with what you value. And she gives an example in her book about, the family that looked at the cards for birthday parties, both throwing birthday parties for your kids and attending birthday parties. And they went, you know what? I don't think I want to spend every weekend going to a birthday party. And they called that out of the deck and they said, we're not going to do birthday parties with our kids. We will have a small family only celebration for our children, but we're just not going to do birthday parties this year. And that was how they reclaimed a huge chunk of their weekend time wow. to, to either do other labor that was of more value to them or to rest or recreate or enjoy themselves. And so it was really fun going through that with my husband and going, okay, we've done Christmas cards for the last five years and yeah, they're fun, but 
would we rather have that, like really treating your time and energy as finite? You know, I'd really rather have that time and energy to do some other labor or to just rest. And he was like, that goes exactly again into this permission, because I can imagine that there is a little voice inside that says, no Christmas cards, no birthday parties, you're bad parents. And how many parents are spending most of their time that they have driving their kids to some events, to some sporting, to whatever. And there is not even, they're like ships passing in the night because one goes there to tennis, the other one goes to soccer and they don't see each other. And it's really a challenge. And I think it's something that I love about this, taking again, the role of the executive authority and saying, not for us. We got to find a different solution. So that's really cool. And the other, I was trying to see if I had it with me, but the other book that was really good about this, Emily Oster wrote a book called The Family Firm mm-hmm. that I think goes hand in hand with this. And she's an, um, an economist and she does a lot of research and she presents to you all of the research and tells you which research is actually good research on these various topics that family cares about. So preschool, early preschool, staying at home versus working moms, extracurriculars, schools, grades, homework. She gives you the information, what the studies say. And then she outlines this system for how to basically run your family like you would run a business, which starts with values, starts with what do we. And it's you're right, it all does pull together with this idea of I don't have to do family the way that I believe family is prescribed. And so she, like, for example, her thing is that they decided that family dinner which is a big one that comes up on my channel because everyone feels ashamed they're not doing family dinner because they feel like they all have to. She decides that family dinner is a value to them. And it's such a value to them that they will not enroll their kids in extracurricular activities that prevent family dinner. Wow, that's great. Now for, now for us, family dinner is not a value. We feed our children at 6 p.m. And then my husband and I eat together at 8.30 after the kids go to bed because we decided that right now, and again, these aren't proclamations for your whole life. It's just the season you're in. For this season with our kids two and four years old, parenting is a marathon in this time. And we decided that having an adults only dinner between my husband and I, where we could connect and eat a meal in peace, that was actually of higher value and better value for our family right now in the season than trying to force some sort of, you know, family dinner where our kids are not really wanting to be there, running all around. And you know what? Maybe as we move into a different season, we'll 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 take a cue from Emily and go, well, now that everyone's doing all these different things. Now we actually value this come together point. But this is the whole key in all of these things. I don't think many and many of us have ever enjoyed the fruit of care tasks and family labor because we've always felt as though the point of doing it is just to do it right and do it enough and do it according to the prescription Instead of like, wait, you're actually just supposed to enjoy your family and enjoy your life. And nobody does all the good things all the time. And, and allowing yourself to throw the rule book out the window and say, what functions for me? What are my values? And what are my barriers and privileges? And how can I bring all three of those things into this Venn diagram and sort of live in that center space? That is the perfect summary of your book, your philosophy, your work. Now, how can people find you and the book and all of those wonderful things? So a great central hub is my website, which is strugglecare.com. You can pre-order my book there. You can, I have a podcast that'll be launching soon. I have a store where you can buy workbooks, things like that. I even have an online course for how to clean out your depression house. And then I primarily post on TikTok every day. And so I'm at Domestic Blisters on TikTok. Domestic and, Blisters. Uh-huh. On Domestic Blisters on TikTok. And that's pretty much where you can find me. I do have an Instagram at Struggle Care. Um, and the book is called How to Keep House While Drowning, which is available at most major retailers. So you can actually order it, right? Because it's mm-hmm. not pre-ordered. It's already out. It's fantastic. And uh, definitely highly recommend it. Very much. I think your message goes way beyond just how to keep the house. It's really about how to keep your life in a place where you are the one who's choosing 
what your values are, what your joy is, what works for you. And I think we all need to remind ourselves of that. So thank you so much for being today on Get thank Real. You. And I hope we'll do this again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure.